All right, back on the Young Turks. So uh, uh, Anthony Scaramucci's plane was delayed, so he's not gonna be able to make it on today. We'll reschedule him. Uh, and uh, it was not because uh, Anna uh, told me not to call him the Mooch anymore. Uh, <laughs> it was because of his plane. Uh, and in the the next guest we have for you guys is gonna be Andrew Morantz. He's from the New Yorker and he's written a super interesting book about uh, basically the deplorables online and their methods and what can we do about it? And is Silicon Valley having a crisis of conscience? And most importantly, what are they doing about it? So we'll talk to him in a second, but uh, it opens up an opportunity to talk to another great guest, Ken Klippenstein. All right, joining me now is our own uh, Ken Klippenstein from TYT Investigates. He did a really important story where he got his hands on an FBI document about who are, are the most dangerous groups in America. Ken, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, Jay, thanks for having me on. No, no problem. Uh, okay, so Ken, um, we've had a lot of uh, mass shootings. Another word for that is massacres uh, done by right-wing extremists, white nationalist extremists. Um, and so in the document that you got, tell us what is the document and where do they have this very significant threat listed? So each year, um, the FBI releases a list of priorities um, and it's consolidated strategy guide. These priorities are very important. They're not just symbolic because they determine um, where money, manpower, you know, resource, investigative resources, that kind of thing, are directed towards. So when they make something a priority, that determines how much, uh, you know, essentially bandwidth they're allowed to dedicate to monitoring and, you know, hopefully countering these groups. And um, so each fiscal year they release one of these. I got the um, priorities list for fiscal years 2018, 2019, and 2020. And um, what I found on those was surprising. Um, in 2018, they had a group called Black Identity Extremists. Um, this had been reported already. Uh, and that was sort of what triggered some of my interest in it. Uh, and, you know, there was a big outcry against that because the FBI has, you know, a history um, going back a number of years, surveilling black activists during the 60s and 70s. So people, you know, were understandably upset about that. And I asked, you know, why, you know, why do we have this term? Can't we just look at the actual crimes as opposed to, you know, the their ethnic affiliation or you know whatever you might call it. Um, and so they ended up removing the term and uh, the FBI uh, told the Senate basically that, you know, oh, we got rid of it, you don't have anything to worry about. But what the documents show is that they basically kept the definition of that term and the constituent parts and just gave it a more innocuous, neutral sounding name, but basically kept a lot of the same stuff going through 2019 and 2020. And I can't imagine the FBI director did not know this. And um, you know, I think he was disingenuous in this. Uh, statement to the Senate saying that they had dropped it. You know, I I might be in the minority here um, in not caring as much about the name uh, Black Identity Extremists. I care more about yeah, but where's the real threats? So if there it was a rise in, I was gonna say Black nationalism, but there's no such thing <laughs> in America. I mean, it's not a real phenomenon. Uh, but something related to African Americans and, and it was leading to mass shootings throughout the country. I wouldn't mind them looking into that. I don't care where it comes from if, if it's leading to, to real threats. Uh, and, and if it turns out there isn't really right wing nationalism and, and leading to mass shootings, then why bother looking into it? So, but where do they have those two things ranked in, in their internal documents at the FBI? Well, when they ended up um, you know, dropping the formal designation black identity extremists and put black extremists under a more neutral one that also conflates it with uh, white supremacists, they now call it racially motivated extremists. Um, it almost sounds like a HR speak, uh, spin on, on, on the original term. 
So they now collapsed um, both the white extremists and the so-called black extremists into the exact same group, um, which you know I think is problematic in itself. Because how are you going to draw an equivalence between you know the, the horrible attacks that we've seen in the last several years by white supremacists? And um, according to FBI's own documentation, they couldn't even produce an example of the attacks. Now they assert that there have been violent attacks and lethal ones by black extremists. They don't cite any examples. On the other hand, if you click through the documents, which are embedded in the story, you'll see that they cite something like half a dozen examples of um, white extremist mass shootings that killed, you know, dozens of people. So um, the gulf there, I think, is pretty shocking. Back when they had black identity extremists by themselves, where do they put, rank that threat? Um, I believe it was towards the center of the list. Oh, and I apologize to answer your earlier question, once they collapsed them all into the same group, they put it towards the very top, I believe in the highest threat band as they uh, you know, uh, describe it in the priorities list, above Al Qaeda and other Islamist terrorist affiliates. Um, and so I find that pretty shocking. And that's in the most recent one, the fiscal year 2020 strategy uh, guide that just came out um, very recently. So um, it, wherever it was in the beginning, it ended up being towards the very top. And since they conflate it with white supremacists, it's difficult to say with certainty um, if they're treating the black extremists uh, you know, differently than the, than the white supremacists, because I think it would make more sense to put white supremacists higher up on the list. Um, but if they are, it certainly doesn't say that anywhere in the documents, because they put them under the same, the exact same category. And Ken, uh, what is Iron Fist? It's a code name. Um, it almost sounds like it's from a dystopian science fiction movie. Um, I couldn't believe it as I read the documents. I had to blink and wonder if I was <laughs> seeing things. <laughs> but um, Iron Fist is the code name for the FBI program by which they would um, surveil and actually recruit informants within black identity extremists. And if you look at the um, document's definition of this, I should have mentioned this earlier, um, they actually define its origins as having been in the Ferguson um, protests following the police killing of um, you know black youth, uh, Michael Brown. And so that's not, you know, me uh, drawing parallels between uh, black protest, you know, groups and, and, and FBI surveillance, that's in the documents themselves. So oper uh, is it Operation Iron Fist or just Iron Fist by itself? Just Iron Fist is okay. the code name for it. All right, so in Iron Fist, what are they doing? They're, they're, are they tracking so-called black extremists? And-, and Yes, um, uh -huh. I'm sorry, go on. No, I was gonna say like it came out of Ferguson. Like, so can I, I? The sense I got from reading your uh, article, uh, it was that, and and also by talking to Daryl Johnson, who used to head up the department, uh, the part of Department of Homeland Security. I talked to him last week uh, on, on this same program. Uh, that they view the progressive groups, environmental, any uh, protesting oil companies, whatever it might be. And black extremists, the reason they rank them so highly uh, as a threat is, including coming out of Ferguson, is because they view them as a threat not necessarily to people's lives, but a threat to the system. And uh, and that's disconcerting because we live in a democracy where we're supposed to challenge the system and try to make it better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, to you know, kind of back up what you're saying, if you go through the documents um, that we've published. Um, you'll see that they actually define and characterize the threat of black extremists differently than they do for white supremacists. Now, white supremacists, the threats are very clear. They go out and they shoot a bunch of people, you know, as we've seen. Um, the way the documents define um, black extremists, they, you know, mention violence, but there's particular focus on um, black individuals, 
perceiving themselves to be, you know, mistreated and have grievances, which obviously, you know, black folks do. Um, but in addition to that, um, it seems exactly as you're saying that uh, the Bureau didn't like the idea that they might pursue some kind of ideological independence or political independence. Um, and th these are all, you know, things that are, that are, that are broached in the, in the, in the strategy guide. And I found surprising because you would think that if, you know, they've got black extremists, white extremists, they'd be roughly, you know, concerned about the same things, but that's not the case. Yeah, and finally, um, do you think Iron Man or Thanos has the Iron Fist? You know, I heard a lot of when I heard the Iron, I was just thinking more Game of Thrones kind of, maybe Jamie's, Jamie Lannister's um, fake hand or something. Because mm, it's gonna be as incompetent and bumbling as possible. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully something like that. Well, I've been watching a lot of Avengers with my son. So I'm worried that if they do have the Iron Fist, uh, I hope they don't snap. Um, <laughs> Long story. Maybe that's what the FBI is worried about. They watch too many Avenger movies, and they're like, "If he snaps his fingers, half the people die." Um, okay, nobody's snapping any fingers. Go after the real threats. Unfortunately, as you've exposed here, uh, they are not. We'll put the link to the article uh, down below if you're watching this later on YouTube or Facebook, uh, and and make sure when you see Ken's articles on tyt.com that you're sharing because it's uh, important to get uh, independent media out there uh, and. Uh, and I want to thank the audience too, because otherwise we couldn't have hired Ken. Uh, so uh, thank you to all of you guys, and thank you, Ken, for a, a great breaking news story. Now I'm seeing uh, quoted all over the rest of the media. Nice job. Thanks a lot. All right, uh, we're going to thank you, Ken. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Andrew Morantz. Uh, he is writing for the New Yorker, and he's written a new book, and it's about the right wing trolls and and worse. And how they are affecting not only the government, but also uh, is there fault for the mainstream media in how they cover them? That's a super interesting topic. Let's do that when we come back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Andrew Morantz. He is not only a writer for the New Yorker, but now the author of Antisocial Online Extremists, Techno Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Andrew, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you on. Uh, so you've also written about the Silicon uh, Valley's crisis of conscience. Uh, I want to get to the right-wing trolls and what to do about them, etc. in a second. But first, I was kind of amused by your description of Silicon Valley. And I, and I, I wasn't sure the HBO show Silicon Valley was overdoing it or not on the spiritual stuff. Uh, but apparently they're not. Uh, so. I don't know. Let's let's start there because because it's it relates to what you wrote about and it's also interesting. Uh, so how you know do they view themselves as progressive or are they doing the meditation and the yoga and all that stuff? But the left wing politics doesn't really come along with it. Uh, I'm curious about that because I have some evidence from folks that some of the higher ups in those uh, companies are not at all left wing. So. Give me your sense of it, having studied it. Yeah, I, uh, I I ask some rhetorical questions in the piece. You know, is this all uh, just canny PR, or is there some actual uh, earnestness behind it? And by this, I mean uh, a kind of wave of Silicon Valley folks heading to spiritual retreats, um, trying to meditate more and kind of cleanse themselves ethically, spiritually, and obviously being kind of you know snarky New York journalist, I was very, very skeptical of this going in. 
uh, as is kind of my, my temperament. And look, I mean, there's lots of reasons to be skeptical. These are profit-making ventures. They want to maximize shareholder value. So, so anything like this could be seen as a kind of potentially cynical move. And I think there is some evidence for that. But I also do think, as one of the CEOs told me in the piece, you know, no CEO wants to go to bed at night thinking, I've made this thing that's causing massive psychological harm. So even if out of pure self-interest, you know, self-interest isn't only financial. And so these people do have incentives that are not purely financial. One of them is to feel like they're okay with themselves, feel like they're on the right side of history. And so I do think there is some earnest uh, intention there, whether it's really uh, being fully acted out, whether it's being fully capitalized on um, to, to coin phrase would be another question. But I do think that there's more than just pure financial self-interest going on. Yeah, and, and look, it's it's a complicated question because oftentimes the media gets boiled down to right wing or left wing. And to some extent, I just did that in that earlier question. But the reality is that uh, they might be left wing on some social issues and massively right wing on economic issues. Um, and almost all of Facebook's board are Republicans. And so you talk about tax cuts, that's a whole different conversation, right? And yeah, yeah. I also think the political DNA of Silicon Valley, in a way, is kind of neither left nor right in the full package of of the sense in which we might mean it politically, but sort of more libertarian or um, even sort of specifically techno libertarian. And so that cuts lots of different ways politically, whether you're talking about gay marriage or whether you're talking about tax breaks or whether you're talking about psychedelics. So yeah, it carves up into sort of micro issues. Yeah, I mean, it's perfectly convenient for Silicon Valley. But the downside of techno libertarianism is it encourages less rules. And now the internet started out as a wonderful thing. And Young Turks is literally the oldest show, daily show online. So I was there when it was wonderful. And our audience <laughs> helped us grow this into what it is today. And I've seen all the upsides of it. But now here come the downsides. But it's easy to say, but you should have seen the downsides coming because what it's actually doing is aggregating humanity. And humanity has a good side and it has a bad side. So, and when you have no rules, well, the things that go bump in the night wind up also coming out to the forefront. And that's exactly what's happened. So let's talk about that. What what do you think it is about the internet? And what do the CEOs think it is about the internet that has caused some of the worst behavior from the right wing. I'm not just talking about like, hey, you're a normal right winger and you want your tax cuts because you're wealthy or you believe in that Jesus loves Trump, God help you. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the extremists and, and what we've seen come out of online communities. Yeah, so there's a couple of levels of it. One that you mentioned is you know, if you're holding up a mirror to humanity, you're gonna get the bad as well as the good. And in a sense, it's it's surprising that anyone was ever surprised by that. Uh, but there's also, I think, a deeper level to it, which, which, you know, in a way, thinking of it as a kind of flat mirror for humanity is almost the optimistic view. And that there's almost a, a scarier view of it, which is that it's not just a, a, a sort of flat reflection of the good and bad of humanity, but that it actually incentivizes or deepens or exacerbates some of the human brain's more nefarious tendencies. And by it here, I mostly mean social media networks that are really optimized for emotional engagement. So there's, there are some parts of the internet that are just sort of more the pipes of the internet. You know, um, it used to cost a lot more to uh, enact certain telecommunications. Now, you know, the connections are getting much easier and faster and cheaper. That's all sort of 
just infrastructural. But the stuff like social media, the, the, the kind of the way that Facebook and, and Twitter have kind of rewired how the internet works, in a sense, it's not just, oh, it's humanity writ large. It's actually, you know, preying on the more addictive, uh, narcissistic, uh, FOMO tendencies that the brain naturally has to perpetuate itself. That's the business model. And so, again, it's not really surprising that some of that stuff would go out of whack, right? And that you would have someone like Donald Trump, who obviously has existed for a long time, but whose brain is sort of perfectly engineered to be ruined by Twitter more than it was already ruined. And, you know, that's happening on a larger scale, too. So it's not, as you say, none of this was unforeseeable. It's just that on a society-wide level, there were no real incentives to see it. The, the companies were making money. Everybody was having fun. Uh, it, it's hard to see what kind of institutional or structural force was going to shut that down back when there was no hugely prescient or salient consequence to be seen in the moment. So when, when Twitter lets people be anonymous, it, it is in essence uh, allowing the bad actors to put on hoods. Uh, it, it's not an accident that the Klan put on hoods uh, because when you, you can't be held accountable uh, and people don't know who you are, you do worse things. The uglier side of humanity comes out. And, and so that also should have been seen. But okay, it's easy to say, well, what are they doing going forward? Uh, and I. And I'm also worried about the so-called solution because you could overreact, shut down all freedom on the internet and put the gatekeepers back in charge. Well, that's what was led to the frustration in the first place. So it's not an easy problem to solve. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do not think we want to have a just full on pendulum swing here where we go, as you say, back to the bad old days. And, and that's not really a realistic option. Um, and as you point out, you know, there was both a left critique and a right wing critique of the kind of consolidation of corporate media. A any kind of institutional power consolidation is going to yield a lot of frustration, rightfully. And so, yeah, we're not going back there. I think and, 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 and you know, whenever we get into this territory, I think it's really important to draw a distinction between what the First Amendment requires and what's kind of just First Amendment analogous. So companies like Facebook and Twitter are not actually required by the First Amendment to let all speech run wild on their platforms. You could argue that maybe they should be, but that's a whole separate area of law. What the First Amendment sets is requirements for what the government can and can't do. So the last thing we want is the government shutting down speech on the internet or elsewhere. Um, that's a really core constitutional protection. But within that, there's questions of what a company can do, what a person can do, what a publication can do. Um, and, and short of banning and censoring things, there's also questions of just what social structures and what sort of economic structures we can set up to incentivize certain kinds of speech, uh, how we can educate people, how we can create sort of civic literacy about media production and, and news literacy. So there's a lot that can be done in between the sort of poles of complete free for all. Everyone can do everything at any moment and uh, no guardrails at all. Uh, you know, every time I speak to anyone on anyone's platform, there are rules. I'm, I'm not going to, there are words I'm not going to say right now because I'm on your platform. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, it, there's just, it's just sort of basic uh, social compact stuff that whenever you're in a collective, whether it's a media collective or a real life collective or whatever, there are certain boundaries to your behavior. And so that doesn't seem like a radical curtailment of speech, but it is one that we haven't really <laughs> put a lot of energy into figuring out. So yeah, I mean, there, there have to be ways that these companies, you know, they, they have to 
take a little hit financially sometimes to figure out how to hire content moderators, train them up, do the difficult work that, frankly, a lot of other analogous institutions in government and universities and everywhere else have been trying to do for decades and centuries. But Andrew, there's another problem, which is that the right wing is so damn loud. So, and the left wing, we're loud at the Young Turks and that's about it. So when you have that mismatch, the mainstream media, often cowers when Ted Cruz yells at them and says, well, of course you should let people be racist, especially against Muslims. And then everybody wants to call it even, right? So how much of a factor is that? And am I roughly right in that analysis, in your opinion? I definitely see that. I mean, I see that there is a kind of an asymmetry there. Um, and I guess I don't really know what to do about it structurally other than to say, you know, there, 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 there's, there's no real honor in losing when it comes to real core principles. I mean, you could see sort of politically how you can make an argument that the Democrats shouldn't match Trump with a Trumpian figure on their side. You know, you can have those debates politically. But in terms of the stuff you're talking about where it's really sort of core, like, are you trying to get to the core principles of should we live in a multi-ethnic society? Or do you want to let your kind of polite vision of how you ought to behave just sort of dictate, oh, no, civility is more important than fighting for an ideal of, of true multi-ethnic democracy. That's where you really get into trouble. Um, and I, I guess I would say that, you know, again, to, to, to talk about the upsides of social media for a second, you do see a lot of people. I mean, you know, you see this week the, the New York Times put out their 1619 project and you see a lot of arguing about it on Twitter, some of which is grandstanding and, um, you know, just sort of hand, hand waving from conservatives saying, why are you making slavery all about race? You know, which just <laughs> is disingenuous and stupid. But on the other hand, you know, there is some productive arguing uh, specifically in the form of a lot of those uh, Times reporters pushing back and saying, what are you talking about? Uh, defending their work as loudly to use your word as some of the critics are. So there's asymmetries, but they're not as maybe endemic and hopeless as we might think. Mm, okay, I hope you're right, Andrew. But <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like mainstream media is they live and breathe false equivalencies, <clears throat> and and now unfortunately it's also spilled over into digital media. So for example, in the advertisers ban any talk of race whether you're for racism or you're fighting against racism. Mm. And so they go, well, I don't want any piece of it. So, uh, and, and the media often does that too. In fact, they, I think mainstream media is even worse. They'll glorify the Ben Shapiro's and the Gavin McInnes's and call them intellectuals and, you know, and have a nerd aesthetic, etc. They either never cover progressives or spit on them. Uh, on a regular basis, and so I, I, does the media even the mainstream media? I, I feel like if they, the New York Times, heard us having this conversation, they'd be outraged, shocked, and chagrined. How could they not see the incredible false equivalencies they do between the right wing and the left wing? Well, it's a really interesting, complicated question, and and so when my book comes out in October, you know, I'll come back and we'll have a longer conversation about Gavin McInnes and Ben Shapiro and those people because there's a lot of stuff in my book about Gavin and people like that, Mike Cernovich, people, the way those people are portrayed in the mainstream media is actually a big part of what I write about. I guess the short version is to say, you know, institutions like the New York Times are a big institution. You know, there was this meeting internally that got leaked, uh, transcript got leaked uh, to Slate and. You know, there's more tension within that newsroom than than 
I would have predicted, you know, it's not a kind of monolithic thing where everybody is saying, oh, you know, why can't we just have our both sidesism? Uh, I think there's a lot of internal dissent, including at the very highest levels, uh, kind of pushing back on that and changing it. I mean, if you look at their package on Gamergate, um, you know, a lot of what we initially saw with Gamergate five years ago, uh, the problems with how it was covered were kind of exemplified by the New York Times. You know, the New York Times coverage of Gamergate initially was uh, pretty um, uh, problematic in that kind of false equivalency way. Now, the New York Times is very boldly sort of writing the history of Gamergate as a harassment campaign in ways that I think would have been unthinkable to that institution a while ago. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, sort of uh, making an apologia on one side or the other. You know, I don't work at the New York Times, but I, I do think that there's a larger question of kind of, you know, what people refer to as the Overton window shifting. And I think we're seeing it shift in big ways that are not all pushing in one direction. Um, I think it's hard to predict exactly how that will shake out. And I definitely think there is problematic false equivalency stuff that I do write about extensively. But I don't think that we're sort of stuck there forever. I think that um, changes are happening. It's a little bit chaotic and kind of hard to tell where it's going to end up. But I, I, I don't think it's static for sure. Yeah. Look, I happen to think that it begins with courage, and so both for mainstream media and for social media to say, no, I don't care how loudly you scream, fighting against racism and being racist are not the same things, and I'm not going mm. to treat them the same. And so if you wanna cry about that, go cry in a corner, but this is our policy and we're going forward. But anyways, I want everybody to read what Andrew's written, because it's really interesting. The piece in The New Yorker is called Silicon Valley's Crisis of Conscious. And the book is called Antisocial Online Extremist Techno Utopians and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. All right. All right. Uh, when we come back uh, for the members, uh, we're going to talk about Bill Maher uh, and the horrible, horrible show he did over the weekend, including everybody on that panel being like, yeah, Palestinians, who gives a shit? Can I say that in the this half hour? Probably not. Uh, I didn't fully say it, but you could beep it anyway. Uh, and uh, and also, there was a debate on CNN about this, and Peter Bonnard did a fantastic job. So uh, a pretty meaty uh, post game for the members today. If you want to join, tyt.com/slash/join. Okay, we'll see you there.